so the power of Christ may rest upon me. Good morning, Trinity Church. <laughs> it's such a joy to be with you this morning. The last couple of weeks, we've been in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, and we've discovered the reality that we are blessed to be a blessing. I love that phrase. I've heard it over the years. I think it's so true of this passage, these passages. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15 tells us that we should express gratitude to God, thankfulness to God for his inexpressible gift. I love the way that chapter ends. God's inexpressible gift. I mean, we can't even really talk about how amazing it is. But this reality in our lives, the earlier verses say it's God's grace. When we think about God's grace, we begin to get into some pretty deep waters, the end of the pool, where we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We've been given the Holy Spirit instead of our flesh. We've been delivered from hell, and, and we have heaven instead. We have a whole new family of God. We've got so many good riches through the grace of Jesus Christ. And Paul ends those two chapters on generosity, and he says, think back to the inexpressible gift of God to us. And this is actually the motivator for us in terms of why those chapters are in 2 Corinthians. God calls us to live lives of generosity to individual Christians that we might meet who are in need, to Christian organizations around us that need to help others who are in need, and to our own church as it, through all of its ministries, meets the needs of people every week. And, you know, as a result of hearing these messages, these chapters, uh, people are asking, what can I do to be more generous? I've had some conversations. What can I do to give more generously? And I think there are some very simple answers. We looked at them. We're going to talk about them just briefly as we get into 2 Corinthians 10. But I think, first of all, we just look around us personally and say, is there anybody around me, especially Christians, who have a need? Can I meet at least part of it? Can I be generous toward them? Uh, coming up in November, we have Advent Conspiracy, and we're going to be looking at 14 different opportunities to be generous with people who are serving others who are in need. And if we think about Trinity Church, there are many, many things happening here that meet the needs of people. There are a number of ways that we can give. Uh, on the seat back in front of you, there's an envelope. Some of you have already taken it home and are praying over it. I just wanted to remind you again of some of the ways we do give. Lisa and I, my wife and I, use a variety of these ways. We prefer the online giving just because I think of COVID and, and how we wanted to continue that process. But we want to throw up on the screen, place up on the screen, uh, some of the other ways we uh, have the online um, QR code. And uh, we've used that, Lisa and I, to give. That's one of the easiest ways for us. We also have a couple of other ways that we give. So guys, if you can throw that up there. Uh, text giving. That is such a simple way. I know most of my younger friends don't even have cash in their wallets. I was, being, I was surprised by that at one point. I'm still the, the paper check and cash kind of guy. But I'm moving into the new century. And a lot of uh, my young friends love to text. Or there's the Trinity app. We use that as well. And then there's uh, one other slide we want to show you this morning. Uh, bill pay through our banking institution. Lisa and I do use that. And check or cash, we definitely use that. So these are just some of the ways that uh, we can give. And honestly, you know, pastors are supposed to know most of everything they preach, right? 
we were convicted by the last couple of weeks in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Um, we, we seek to be generous, but we realized we have a ways to go. And so my wife and I are just praying, God, how do you want to uh, guide us and provide for us to be even more generous? And uh, we're excited to see how God's going to provide, and we hope that you're doing the same. If you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, would you open them to 2 Corinthians 10? And this is a section where Paul is looking to the future, and he says, I want to talk this morning about spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership. This is such an important subject for us. The churches of America today around the world need spiritual leadership, and God has gone to great lengths to tell us what to look for in that and how to applaud it and how to affirm those who give it. So we're going to take time to look at that today in five specific ways, but before we do, would you uh, take a moment and pray with me as we begin to consider this topic? Heavenly Father, we've come to church this morning um, expecting to be led by people who have spent time in your word and uh, who love you, who love this body, who want to see it built up. And Father, we recognize that uh, being a spiritual leader not only makes them a greater target for Satan, because Satan is so opposed to that in our world today, good spiritual leadership. But Father, it also just has a lot of demands on it. Um, relationship demands, um, ministry demands, personal demands. And so Father, we pray today, as we look at this passage, that you would open our hearts, you would inspire our minds, help us to think clearly about your intentions, your desires, and your provision for these leaders in our lives. And Father, as we do, we just want to say thank you for the leaders you've given us. From the very top level all the way down, people who were at the mentoring uh, process yesterday, the Spirit-led mentoring, and we're learning better how to give guidance and wisdom and counsel to others. Father, in our world today, these are things that we desperately need. We need to have people who know the truth and can share it and guide us and love us. So Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as Paul looks at this section of 2 Corinthians 10, he takes a moment and pulls us back to 2 Corinthians 7. So you're going to have to take your Bibles and go back a couple of chapters because he does a little uh, reflective thinking back to chapter 7 where he talked about his heart for the people of Corinth. So you find in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 4, his opening statement about spiritual leadership. He writes to us, Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. So look at what he says about spiritual leadership here. He says, first of all, we have open hearts toward you. You're in our hearts. We would live or die together. We are a band of brothers in that sense. He says we are in, uh, people of integrity. Uh, we seek to do the right thing, uh, not corrupt, not take advantage, not wrong. We're bold in our speech and action toward anyone who would dilute the message or delay the ministry. We're confident in those who follow, and we're joyful despite afflictions. 
These are wonderful qualities. Would you agree? These are good qualities of spiritual leaders. But something else that spiritual leadership takes or requires is grit. The old John Wayne kind of movie grit. In preparing for this morning, I came across a, a comment on spiritual leadership from a gentleman who is a professor of theology at Boston University. His name is Stephen Sandage. And uh, he did a post-pandemic study on spiritual leaders and what their job is like tonight, today. And I thought, you know, this is helpful for us. After his study uh, of a number, uh, thousands of pastors across the U.S., he writes, uh, we did a couple of studies with clergy and spiritual leaders where we found their rates of post-traumatic stress uh, disorder symptoms were at an alarmingly high level, and in fact, at a level that would be higher than some post-deployment military personnel. And I thought, that is amazing. Having lived next to Camp Pendleton for 30 years of ministry, I, I met a lot of Marines and sailors who had uh, PTSD. And uh, he's saying, you know, spiritual leaders are at a level, an alarming level, where we're seeing that. He says, there's a set of things that can make the job really tough for people who are in religious leadership. We see a lot of direct exposure to suffering. People in religious leadership get to be with folks in truly wonderful times in their lives, when they become a Christian, when they break bonds of uh, addiction, when there are healing of relationships, when there are births or weddings, all kinds of wonderful things, he says. But what's sometimes underrated is the amount of direct exposure to suffering, direct losses, deaths, criticism, existential crises of questions of faith and life, deconstruction of one's perspective. And often with a kind of unpredictability to it, they can get called into it at a moment's notice. Another big dimension, he writes, is sometimes there are very few boundaries. There can be expectations of being on call around the clock, attending constantly to the needs or requests of the congregation. We've also seen in our research difficult relational boundaries where, for example, members, if they're frustrated or angry at the leader, can sometimes be intrusive in ways that are really difficult. Experiences of relational aggression have been prominent in our recent research with religious leaders. And folks, this, this is across the U.S. I talked to a friend recently who's a pastor in the area, and he said, you know, I don't know of any church that's not going through these types of challenging times. He says, when you take all of these factors together, it's quite a complicated landscape. And then the pandemic on top of that. That has been obviously a tipping point for many congregations and leaders. The adjustments that needed to be made, the declining attendance at services, the declining support, the multitude of losses have intensified all of those factors I just mentioned. In our faith leaders, or if our faith leaders are under the high risk of trauma, severe stress, and under support, there's only so long that that's a sustainable situation. We're concerned with finding ways to better sustain these caregivers, healers, and leaders in our community who give so much. When we see rising rates of mental health struggles or occupational burnout, it certainly doesn't bode well for the caregiving, and we need to remember that our leaders are human beings too. When I read that, I thought, man, that, that is absolutely uh, astounding. Having been in ministry for a long, long time, we know that these are real pressures, but I had no idea PTSD was at that level and some of these other struggles. One of my seminary professors re referred to spiritual leadership as a painful ecstasy. <laughs> I had to think about that. 
painful ecstasy. This is when I was just starting to get into ministry. I don't think I agree with that. Well, I do now. <laughs> it's a struggle sometimes to be in spiritual leadership for a lot of reasons. So I think it's important for us to take time today and try to truly understand what Paul is saying to us here. What do our spiritual leaders need to do? What, what can we expect of them? How can we support them and love them? So here are five things. We're going to go through them one at a time. They're on your sermon outline. First of all, Paul tells us uh, that there are things our great spiritual leaders do on a regular basis. There are things great spiritual leaders do. Secondly, he's going to say what spiritual weapons are given to them to protect us. And there are spiritual weapons that spiritual leaders have. They are powerful spiritual weapons. What spiritual authority do they have from God to guide us? Are they on their own, or does God actually give them a sense of rightful authority? To what should they compare themselves and not compare themselves? And finally, who should they be primarily uh, concerned with? Who are they concerned for? So what do great spiritual leaders do? Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am, quote, humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. That was the statement being used of Paul by the uh, critics in the Corinthian church, the Judaizers. Now, he's humble when he's face to face with us, but he's bold when he writes to us from far away. Verse 2, he says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So we find out first thing that great spiritual leaders speak into problems with meekness and gentleness. Notice uh, verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul uses uh, an opening statement here that you rarely see from him. He actually uses his name in the middle of a book. He usually puts it at the very beginning of how he, Paul, is writing to the church at Corinth or wherever. But here he says, I, Paul, myself. This is like seeing a bald eagle in mid-flight up at Big Bear Lake. And you say to yourself, man, you hardly ever see that. And we should ask ourselves, where did that come from? And this is the same kind of thing. We hardly ever see Paul do this. I, Paul, myself. Well, the short and sweet answer is that Paul is um, preparing to act like a great spiritual leader with regard to them. And he wants to catch their attention before he does that. So he says to them, I, Paul, myself. This would be like having a con casual conversation with somebody you know, and right in the middle of it you say, Steve, I, Doug, myself, say to you. Does that change the tenor of the conversation? It's like Steve's going, whoa, what? What is he going to say? And this caught the ear of the Corinthians. I, Paul, myself, say to you, listen carefully. He's speaking to them this way because there still remained in the Corinthian church a, a group of Judaizers who were still opposed to Paul. They were, they were still opposed to their spiritual leader. And in 2 Corinthians 11, which we're looking at next week with Josh Lee, is actually going to be sharing that passage with us, and I'm excited to hear him. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, he actually uh, distinguishes them. He, he calls them out in a sense. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself 
as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. So in this next chapter, as he shares about spiritual leadership with the church, he says you have to be careful. There are spiritual fakes whose messages oppose God's word and work. They're deceivers of God's people. They're demanding the exclusive loyalty of others to themselves. And frighteningly, he even calls them servants of Satan. That is quite a charge. Can that be true? And yet, he says, by their behavior and words, that's exactly what they were doing. I think at this point, as Paul is writing, he's recalling Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 to mind. Isaiah 14, this section, tells us about the original fall of Satan from heaven and why it happened. And Isaiah writes in chapter 14, How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, and listen to Satan's processing as he's thinking about himself and God. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will uh, be above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Paul has this passage, I think, in mind, and he's looking at this church that he loves so much and the struggle that they're going through, and he says, there are things happening, Corinthians, around you that are, first of all, like Satan in the sense of pride. The will and desire to be more and have more than they were entitled to. The insistence on what they wanted, just like Satan, I will, I will, I will. I will put myself above God. And the second was this rejection of established authority. I, not God, will rule. And so Paul looks at the Corinthian church, and and this opposition deeply troubles him. And he knows that these behaviors are going to slowly yet surely cause the church's mutual love to diminish and its uh, work to be delayed. And so he writes here in verses 1 and 2, flexing his spiritual muscles a little bit, He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am, as my opponents say, humble, face-to-face, bold when when I am away, I beg of you, when I am present, that I not have to show boldness with confidence. Now, you notice what we don't hear here, hear (laughs) here, is the sound of a phone book being ripped in half, right? You don't have the shattering of a thick board by a single Taekwondo blow. You don't see this hugely powerful individual approaching them. What you see is a strong authoritative leader, but one who is gently entreating and begging people to respond to his spiritual leadership. He uses a couple of words here that are so important. Paul entreats them. This is the word parakaleo. Any of you ever heard that word before in relationship to the Holy Spirit? We translate it comforter. The one who comes alongside para and calls to the person to follow a certain pathway. This is a term that was used by Roman emperors. When they had the the right and the authority to demand something, but they would come to someone under them who needs to change, and and they would put their arm around them, so to say, and and say, you know, I think it would be better if you would simply do this. Would you mind? that entreating that comes from a, uh, a heart 
that is concerned, but an authority that is powerful. And so Paul uses this. He says, you know, I've got a steel fist. I don't want to use it. I am a bold apostle of Jesus Christ, but I have a soft glove. And as I come among you out of love and humility, I want to ask you to cooperate with me on this so that later on I don't have to take that glove off when I come in person. And then Paul says, I beg you. This is a strong way of asking for something. It's, it's the same way the leper came and implored Jesus to heal him, begged of Jesus, heal my skin. It's the same word used of, of the father who comes in desperation to Jesus, cast this demon out of my son. It's the same word used of the Macedonians who begged Paul for the privilege of giving more and more. And so he comes to the Corinthians and he says, with meekness and gentleness, I have the authority to demand it. I'm not going to do that. Please, let's work together. And he says it's a meekness and gentleness such as Jesus had. When Jesus was facing arrest in the garden, you remember Peter pulls out his sword and clumsily cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. And Jesus gently goes over and takes the ear off, up, probably blows it off, you know, gets it all clean, sticks it back on his head. There you go. And he turns and he says to Peter, Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he at once will put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A legion was 5,000 soldiers. Peter, I'm glad you brought your sword. You need to put it away, but don't you know I could have God send immediately right here 60,000 angels to protect me. Can you imagine how that would have worked out? 60,000 angels, what authority, what power. And yet in meekness, he's patient in the face of opposition. He's free from malice and revenge. He bears reproach and slights without being resentful. He endures trusting in his Father. He's gentle and kind toward others who are not. He's fair and gracious toward people opposed to him. He makes allowances for others even when they're unkind. He responds with mildness to aggressiveness, and he holds off confronting firmly and boldly until it's absolutely necessary. Paul says, that's what I want to do with you. I want to come to you kindly and gently, meekly, and implore you, please, let's work together. So one of the things that spiritual leaders do is they respond with gentleness and meekness, knowing there's authority, knowing that Christ has given them leadership, but wanting change to happen because of a willingness. Secondly, is God does give them powerful spiritual weapons. Look in verses 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we're all human, is what he's saying, we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh, that inner tendency and spirit that has a, that is humanity for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but they have divine power to destroy strongholds to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete what is he saying? He's saying God gives spiritual leaders great weapons for fighting spiritual battles, 
Folks, how often do we think of the spiritual battle in our world today as the church versus the culture, as the church versus Satan, as the church versus the world? And there are battles that need to be fought in that arena against not flesh and blood, but the principalities and the powers of spiritual darkness. But Paul is referring to here a battle that was going on inside the church. He's writing to the Corinthians who are still saying, Paul is not our legitimate spiritual leader. And he says, this is a battle primarily of the thought life. Notice his phrasing here. Destroy strongholds. We'll talk about what those are in just a minute. But destroy arguments. Destroy lofty opinions. Destroy every thought or take it captive to Christ. So he is writing about the battle in our thoughts between the flesh and the Spirit of God. One commentator fleshes this out a bit. He says, to be specific, the flesh works something like this. Somebody says an unkind word about you, or you're accused falsely of something you have not done, or someone is spiteful in his comments and critical in their attitude, and you begin to think about it. You repeat it to yourself over and over and over again with increased indignation. And because it begins to fill our minds, you tell our, we tell our friends, with additions, of course, until at last, by frequent repetition, we have been insulted 20 times instead of one. You have determined to counterattack, to retaliate, to answer back, to vindicate yourself, and to prove they were wrong and you were right. He says, this is the carnality in the thought life. What then is the answer? He writes, as a Christian engaged in this conflict, knowing that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, there are two laws, the law of exclusion and the law of attention. And he describes them briefly. He says, how do they operate? When the thought comes and the person is reported to have said what he has said, and the unkindness has been passed over to us, and the criticism has been made, whereas carnality would say counterattack, Spirituality has the mind which was in Christ Jesus. We find it in 1 Corinthians 2. And it humbles itself and recognizes that nothing that any person could ever say, and listen to this, this is so true for me, and I think it is for all of us, nothing that any person could ever say about any of us is really one one-hundredth part as bad as the truth, if they only knew it. <laughs> if you knew my history, you might be tempted to say, why is he up there? Because I am certainly not perfect. And we've talked about how we ourselves have this history. Sometimes we wish we could just get rid of it. I have thoughts of things I've said in the past. I wish, oh, I wish I could have taken that back. And I've had to work it out, and sometimes I didn't work it out. But he says, you know, if, if they knew the truth, it wouldn't even be close to as bad. That is the law of exclusion, he says. But there's also the law of attention. Paul says, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there is any praise, think on these things. We have the law of exclusion where we put it out of our thoughts. If they knew the truth about me or if I knew the truth about them, this would be a minor thing. But then there's the law of attention that says here's what you need to pay attention to he goes on in conclusion he says when carnality arises in our hearts and thoughts causing us to answer back 
to retaliate, to fail to follow the principle of discipleship laid down by the master, at that moment we must think on these things and answer Satan by saying, I'm sorry, my house is full. I have no room for you. I have no time to listen to you. That is the law of attention. Paul looks at certain things here, and he says, God's weapons destroy strongholds. Translated, stubborn, resistant reasonings of our minds. They get entrenched there, and we refuse to give them up. Much like an old stronghold where it's being attacked, and they say, you'll never conquer this. In our minds, we have at times stubborn reasonings that we refuse to give up. His weapons reduce arguments to, to rubble. These are the rationalizations of why we did what we did that excuse our behavior because it's what it felt right at the moment. So it reduces these arguments to rubble. It demolishes every lofty opinion raised against knowing God. These are the mental processes that we believe we can handle life on our own. We don't really have to conform to the word of God. There's a better path to follow a path that will actually produce the result that we're looking for. And then he says, God's weapons take every thought captive to obey Christ. I've shared this verse with people over the years, I think probably a little inaccurately, because I've just said, you know, when you're having a thought about something in life, you just have to take it captive. You know, if it's something that makes you feel bad, you've got to take it captive and put it away in its prison and not think about it. But Paul here is saying, these are the desires of the mind not just what's coming at us but what's coming out of us the desires of the mind that want to control us and dictate to us how our relationships and our circumstances should be worked out and then he says in verse 6 this really interesting phrase being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete God's weapons do punish every disobedience, but only when a church is fully obedient to the truths of God is what he's saying here. That is, once the Corinthian church responds in obedience to God's word, uh, it's going to become very clear who is not following in obedience and who is. But until that occurs, it's difficult for a church to move forward. So the leaders have to continue to use their spiritual weapons against the strongholds of the mind. So that brings up the question, you're probably thinking about it already, what are these spiritual weapons? Paul says we have them, spiritual leaders are endowed with them, the church actually has given them. What are they that can take these lofty thoughts that are going in the wrong direction and bring them back to the right direction? Ray Steadman describes them for us. I was sharing this with Steve this week and he said, Doug, you're dating yourself. Most people don't know Ray Steadman. Can I just see how many of you know Ray Steadman? Oh, okay. This is a generational thing, isn't it? <laughs> One of my favorite mentors through his writings, great, great man of God, very practical. He wrote about this, and he says, let's, let's compare the weapons of God with the weapons of the flesh. And he says, what does the world try to use to solve the problems it sees in society? So think about for that a second. Our culture sees problems in the world, and there are attempts to solve those problems. What do they do? And he writes, well, you know what they use? Coercion, manipulation, pressure groups, compromises, demonstrations that ultimately result in raised voices, clenched fists, outbreaks of conflict, boycotts, pickets, and strikes in attempts to pressure people into doing what others want. These are the weapons of the world. 
It doesn't have any others. So it's understandable why those who are governed by the flesh would seek to employ fleshly weapons, even in the church, to get things done. What are the weapons of God? There are five of them he listed. These are so simple. You're going to hear them and go, I don't know. Is really, that really the answer? Is that that powerful in addressing this kind of thinking? Well, let's find out. He says the first is truth. It's one of the powerful weapons of God. He says, unless we are finding our minds renewed by the Spirit of God and refreshed by the reminder of what life is really like and what it is we are really up against, we find ourselves acting just like anybody else. We have to know the truth. Secondly is love. When you begin to treat people with courtesy instead of anger, when you accept them as people with feelings like yours, you change the whole picture. Love is a dynamic weapon of God against the thought processes of the flesh. The third is faith, and this is the recognition that God is present in history. He's at work in our world. He's not left us alone to stumble along on our own way. God is at work. And how freeing is that to realize I don't have to solve every problem using the tools I think will work. God is at work. The fourth is prayer. Again and again, the record testifies that events have been dramatically altered by Christians who pray. Would you agree with that? Amen. These all make sense. But sometimes we think about them in a way that doesn't bring them to bear in terms of the challenges of relational conflict. The last is loving service, doing something good to others. This is what changes history. When Christians act differently, you will never find non-Christians doing that. Their demand is to get even to demand justice. Christians are to remember that if we had justice, all of us would be in hell. Therefore, mercy is what is required. To return good for evil is a potent weapon that we can employ. So God gives these powerful weapons to spiritual leaders to help the church to change and to grow, to build it up and not to tear it down. And you notice the, the third thing in verses 7 through 11 is that God gives spiritual leaders genuine authority. Paul becomes very practical here. And he says, look, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Even if I boast a little too much of my authority, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for destroying you, I'm not going to be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty. The, the term in Greek is heavy-handed and strong. In Greek, it is brutish force. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we will do when present. We have a genuine spiritual authority. And Paul's pushback is so delightful. He says to him, look around you. What do you see? What's before your eyes? Well, a Christian church. Yeah, where did that come from? Uh, well, you, you started the church. Um, you invited us into a relationship with God. I mean, Paul, you should remember this, right? You're not getting dementia already. 
Who helped you grow in your faith? Who taught you? Who loved you? Who came alongside you when you were struggling and in pain and needing prayer and comfort? Answer, you did, Paul. That's right. He says, so, if your Judaizers there are saying, well, Paul doesn't even belong to Christ. He is not Christ's. But we are. Think about that. If I'm not in Christ and I started the church with you, what does that make you? Not in Christ. For instance, if you're going to have a kale salad, what do you have to have in the salad? Kale, that's right. If you're going to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, what do you have to have in the sandwich? Peanut butter and jelly. 100% cotton-free t-shirt, it better have some cotton in it, right? And Paul is just saying to them, look, if you're saying I'm not in Christ, I'm not an apostle, I'm not even a Christian, then what does that make you guys? Because I brought you into the faith. So he reminds us in verse 8, notice in verse 8, what is the purpose of spiritual authority? He says it is to build up the church. And Paul is doing that by correcting the critics and bringing the church back under the loving leadership of the Father with the God-given authority to build them up, to help them to grow, to renew them and strengthen them. But here's the thing. Spiritual growth and development is always a process of commending what is good and correcting what is not. That's how you build. You take what isn't helpful and you, re, you uh, change it. You bring it back. You renew it. And, and that which is good, you applaud it and you confirm it and you commend it. Confrontation is always frightening to the flesh and it's unnerving to the car carnal mind. It threatens comfortable sins and it accosts determined wrongs. So some of the Corinthians in their flesh were reactive to his correction. In fact, so much so that they say you're heavy-handed and you're brutish in your force. You are abusing us with your authority. You're being so hard on us in your letters. But building believers into strong warriors for God does require correction at times, and it does require admonition. And Paul cautioned them that if they would not repent now and change, when he came to them, that soft glove would come off and his authority would be evident. What were the things going on in their church that were so challenging that Paul said, these have got to be addressed? What are the weighty words that he's giving them, these heavy-handed comments? Well, he tells us later on in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Notice in verse 20. It'll be on the screen for us. He says, here are the sins I'm concerned about. I fear that perhaps when I come, I may, I may find you not as I wish, and you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And he says, for you to grow, we've got to correct these things. We've got to address them. We've got to build them back into what is commendable. There's just two of them I want to focus on for just a moment this morning because I think the American church still struggles with this because our culture struggles with this. And they are the sins of gossip and slander. These are the sins that usually get a free pass in most Christian churches. And Paul would say, oh, that's not a good idea. We need to talk about these. So we're going to put up on the screen definitions of them, first of all, and then a little bit about where they come from and how do we take care of them. So number one, gossip 
is simply revealing information about other people's faults and failures to those who have no business knowing it. So if I find out something about a fellow brother or sister in Christ and I know it's a struggle they're having, it's a fault that they've sinned or erred in some way, if I don't go to them and talk to them about it, but instead I go to my friends and say, did you hear about so-and-so? Did you know that this was, well, you didn't know that? And if I even add something onto that, guess what happens? If I exaggerate a little bit, if I extrapolate a little bit just for effect, I have now slipped into slander. Scripture is so clear. If I have something against someone else, I have to go to them. If they have something, about, uh, something against me and I know it, I have to go to them. There's no room for talk about them. And gossip is this revealing of information about other people's faults or failures to somebody who has no business knowing it. Slander is lying about someone with the intent of causing others to view that person in a negative light. As Lisa and I were um, going through this passage this week, and we were talking about that actually this morning, and we paused for a second, looked at each other and said, oh, we are guilty. We have done that. And you're asking yourself, here? No. But we've done that in the past. Because we've been hurt, we thought it needed to be said, we didn't have the courage to go to the person, whatever the reason. Secondly, Gossip collects someone's secrets and passes them on to others. So if I find out something that somebody has shared in confidence with me and it's a secret in their life and they, they're working on it but they're not ready to deal with it in a, in a broader way, if I take that and I go and I share it with somebody else, I have gossiped against them. Slander is taking gossip to a whole new level by making up secrets and sharing them where they will do the most harm. Do you see the difference between the two? Gossip is simply repeating information that doesn't belong to this person. Slander is making up information that will harm that person even more and sharing that with someone else so they will look at them and go, oh, that is a terrible thing. When in reality, it might have been much minor. Thirdly, gossip, Proverbs 11 says, gossip stirs up dissension and separates close friends. When we engage in this, it stirs people up, gets them upset frustrated, angry, and it will take close friends and separate them because of the gossip. Slander, Colossians 3 says, absolutely has no place in our lives. We are to be of the truth, not of a lie. Fourthly, gossip is an act of the flesh. And Romans 1 tells us it is under God's wrath. Wow. Think about that for a second. This which seems so simple of just passing on information, little tidbits here and there, they're harmless, we feel like. It's just informing people, right? Helping them understand how we feel. This is under God's wrath. It's that serious a sin to him. It's an act of the flesh. Slander is an act of, Paul says in Romans 1, the act of a depraved mind. And it comes from an evil heart, Matthew 15 says. Oh, dear Lord. I guess these are not as simple as the American church thinks. What is God's solution to gossip? It's what my mom used to tell me. If you can't say anything nice, right. <laughs> just, just shut your lips, Doug. And I grew up in a family with six kids where there were always secrets to share, always failures to share, right? And we often did freely, but we learned that it would separate us. 
What is God's solution to slander? I love this. Love one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love meets a need. Love is not offended. 1 Corinthians 13. Hopes at all times. Loves at all times. So God says, here's the solutions. We go to the person or we're quiet about it. We love the person despite the harm. And Paul looks at the Corinthians and he says, you know, you actually got a lot of other things going on here. You got anger and jealousy, hostility, conceit, disorder, but, but these two seem to be at the root of all of the others. So spiritual leaders are charged with the well-being of the church, including discipling and correcting members in the body when it's needed. That's their role. But number four, he says, spiritual leaders must not compare themselves to others. Oh, this is such a temptation. Look at verses 12 through 13. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. We're not going to get in this struggle of saying, well, are you better than me? Are you a stronger leader? Are you not? He says, we're not going to do that. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So what will we do? We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. Folks, how easy is it today to compare ourselves with others, compare our spiritual leaders with others, compare our small group leader with others? We have the internet, right? You can virtually attend any church in the world that you want to after you come here. We have Christian conferences you can go to. We have Christian publications you can read, speaker blogs, MP3s, and the list goes on and on and on and on. We have got a, a variety of things that we can compare and contrast. But that type of top-gun comparison and commendation lacks understanding. It's foolish, Paul says. Do you want to know what a great spiritual leader is? How do you find one? How do you know one when you see one? Paul says it's right here, verse 13. We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us. Folks, God has given every one of you and I an area of influence in the church of Jesus Christ, in the kingdom of God. He wants you to influence others, and that can be on a variety of levels. We talk about spiritual gifts and abilities and talents. Young or old, talented or not, Smart as a whip, twice as dumb, it doesn't matter. God says, I have a place for you to serve, a sphere of influence for you to work. And the questions are twofold. Number one, have you found your sphere of influence yet? And secondly, how are you doing at it? So that we don't compare ourselves with others, we compare ourselves with how we are doing on the work God has given us. Over the past 20 years, every Sunday morning, I get up and I cook breakfast. I don't say that to pat myself on the back. It was a necessity when the girls were younger. Because Lisa was involved in children's ministry. She was involved in the music ministry. She was doing a variety of things in the life of the church. And she was getting our girls ready for church. You might say, well, Doug, why weren't you doing that? Well, I'm not that good at that part of it. But I can cook breakfast, right? So for the last 20 years, every Sunday morning, I have cooked omelets for the family. And honestly, I've gotten pretty good at it. After 20 years, you'd think you'd better be good at it, right? But there's a problem with that. I have a hard time going to breakfast and ordering an omelet. 
Because I sit down and I look at that and I think of my omelet, which are fluffy and there's got tons of stuff in it and it's just oozing out of the sides, you know, and there's the toast done just right and fresh fruit and coffee. And I'll sit down at a restaurant and go, ah, it's not like mine. <laughs> and Lisa will sit there going, just eat it. Just, just, just eat it. I compare. And what God wants me to do when I go out to breakfast and what he wants us to do in the church is to take a look at that omelet that somebody else has made and say, thank God I've got food this morning. And when I make my own omelet, great. I can ask myself, how'd you do this morning? I kind of burned it a little bit, left it too long. I was doing something else. I can compare myself with myself and what God wants me to be, the excellence he's calling me to, but he says, Doug, love what other people are doing in the ministry. Be glad for what they're doing. Enjoy that other guy's omelet even though it doesn't have avocado, right? <laughs> Folks, it is so easy to be critical. Our world today is critical. Would you agree with that? We have a lot of critical voices speaking into our environment. And God says, this is the way of the flesh. The way of the spirit is different. It has these five weapons, beautiful weapons that he calls us to, and he says, what I want you to do is figure out where I need to be involved in the kingdom of God. Begin to serve. Look at how I am doing in that and not compare myself to others. I like Romans 4.14 or 14.4. It's been a verse that I was convicted by a number of years ago, but it's been a companion to me now. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? So as Paul's writing in Romans, there is this criticism going on of, you know, I'm of Apollos, I'm of so-and-so, and he says, stop that. Who are you to pass judgment on another man's servant? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and folks, he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. God is the one who ultimately commends. We don't need to worry about the rest of it. And finally, spiritual leaders are concerned both for believers and unbelievers. Look at verses 14 through 18. This ends up the chapter here. He says, hey, we are not overextending ourselves as though we didn't reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another man's area of influence. We're not trying to creep onto other people's successes and build on other people's labors. We're doing ground-cutting work here. And he says in verse 17 and 18, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So Paul simply says to these Gentile Christians, Look, God gave me the assignment of being the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter is going to the Jews. I'm going to the Gentiles. Are you guys Gentiles? You're Gentiles. That's great. So you're the area of influence God has given me. And I was the first to come to you. I was the first to reach you with the gospel. I'm not infringing on somebody else's area of responsibility. But I have this concern. And that is, I want to complete the work God has given me. He says, if your faith were stronger, you would have been able to send me on to new areas of ministry. In fact, it was the Roman church, not the Corinthian church, that sent him towards Spain or wanted to send him towards Spain. Their faith had gone, gotten strong enough. And he says, I've spent a lot of time and energy with you simply addressing 
the divisions, the critic uh, as aspects, the carnal attitudes, the hurtful words. Folks, if we could stop all of that, it would stop delaying the gospel to others. I want to spend my time productively among you. I want to build your faith to the point where you go, Paul, this message has got to reach them. We want to help you get there so that all of the, the stuff going on in their church is resolved and they can actually be productive in the kingdom of God. So you have two final qualities here. Spiritual leaders want to build the church, but they also want to reach the lost. I love the mission of this church, right? Rooted in Christ, reaching our worlds. That's the job that we have. And secondly, they want God to get the glory, not themselves. That's spiritual leadership God approves. And verse 18 confirms it, 17 and 18. Let the one who boasts, if you're going to be glad about what you do, and if you're going to say, hey, this is, this is really important, I'm able to do this, look at how good I am, he says, boast in the Lord. He is the one who commends. Nobody else. I think it's so fascinating that as he closes this chapter, he uses a word for approved that we've seen before. It's the word dokimazo, documents. And it's a word that says approved by testing. Approved by testing. I believe God brings times of difficulty into the life of a church in order that their work can be tested and approved. And I think when God brings difficulties into the life of the church, whether they be financial decline, whether they be um, infiltration, in, infiltration of uh, cultural values, whether they be false doctrines, whether they, they be the challenge of change or uh, the emergence of proud leaders who want to run the church, whatever it might be, as Warren Wiersbe tells us, he says the question becomes this. Here's the test. Will we respond by the flesh or the spirit? Will we use the, the ways that the world tries to correct things or will we use the weapons that God has given us that destroy all of these attitudes that are opposed to the spirit of God? I like what Wearsby has to say. I'm dating myself again. I don't mind though, it's, it's good. He says the important thing for us is that we are where God wants us to be, doing what he wants us to do giving him all the glory for the work that is produced, which means that motive and response is as much a part of God's measurement of our work as is growth. Hear that well. Motive and response is as much a part of God's measurement of our work as is growth. If we are seeking to glorify and please God alone, and if we are not afraid of his evaluation of our hearts and lives, then we need not fear the estimates of men or the criticisms that come, in the end, this is what Jesus commends. Would you pray with me? In just a moment, our worship team is going to come back up and lead us in worship. And then as we end our service, we're going to take time to pray as a congregation. But we're also going to take time to affirm the spiritual leaders that God has given us and pray God's blessing on them and strength on them and guidance on them as they lead us forward. And I think that's so important to follow in Paul's footsteps here of saying that's the right thing to do. So let's continue our worship. Would you stand as we worship together?
Hello. <laughs> this song that we're about to sing is um, one we've done once or twice before, but I think it captures what Pastor Doug was just sharing with us, that we're empowered through the gifts of the Holy Spirit to show the world what it looks like, what Jesus looks like. Thank you. Um, and it's not by our own power or our own might. Otherwise, we're just reproducing our sin nature inadvertently. But it's the Holy Spirit in us. And so as we sing this song, as you guys catch on, would we just sit and rest in the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of this gift that's been extended to us? And would that be our prayer? What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold my hope is only Jesus for my life is wholly bound to him oh how strange and divine I can sing all is mine yet not I but through Christ in me
I'm going to ask those of you who are in spiritual leadership here, whether you're an elder, pastor, ministry director, to come on up this morning. If you minister in an area of leadership, we want to pray for you this morning and acknowledge the fact that Jesus Christ has you here for a reason, but it's to give him glory. Come on up here, if you would. Just stand right in front of me, if you would. Thank you. Turn around. (laughs) I am so thankful for all of these leaders, for the spiritual ministry that they engage in. When Lisa and I were just attending here, not just attending, but attending, I wasn't doing this, we didn't get a chance to know all of these leaders, but over the last four or five months, I've sat together with them and talked about leadership and ministry personal accountability and responsibility and what I am seeing is people who are humble at heart they have made mistakes I have a general rule by the way if a person is doing 70% of what they need to do I give grace for the rest if they're doing 30% of what they need to do that's a different story (laughs) but you know none of us is perfect but these people love Jesus and they love you and they're working hard And I just want to take time because Paul talks to us about spiritual leadership and the importance of it, the necessity of it, and we as a church are gifted with many spiritual leaders, small group leaders, home group leaders, leaders in uh, kids' ministry and youth ministry. These are the people I get to spend a lot of time with, and, uh, and I'm grateful. So we're going to take a minute and pray for them. Come on in closer. Paul, why don't you come on in a little closer? I'm going to be behind all of you. Heavenly Father, we do as a church and as individual attendees and leaders, whatever uh, place you have given us to serve, we want to take a moment this morning and say, first and foremost, God, we want you to get the glory from whatever we do. God, we do not want to compare one person with another. It's so easy for us to do, but God, it's so useless. You tell us we lack understanding if we do it. Father, I thank you for each of these leaders who works hard in the sphere of influence you have given them to work in. And Father, may they not compare themselves with anyone else in any other um, type of ministry that is equal to theirs in another church or here in this church. May they compare themselves to how well they're doing at what you've given them to do. God, I know they seek to be gentle and meek. Those are difficult qualities for us to exemplify because we still have the flesh, but Jesus was the perfect example of someone who was kind, patient, strong, and yet gentle. And Father, underneath it all, we know you've given these people a spiritual authority that we are called upon to submit to and follow, Father, because they are following after Jesus. Paul, Paul wrote, follow me as I follow Jesus, and that should be our cry. Father, help us because we are human, just as uh, Stephen uh, said at the beginning of this message in his quote, our spiritual leaders are human beings too. And Father, we want to affirm them this morning. We want to ask you to bless them, to strengthen them, to enable them. Keep them humble, Father. Keep them focused on you, the author and perfecter of their faith and of ours, and help them to build us. Father, we know that's sometimes through correction and sometimes through commendation, but help us to listen to them because you have called them into this position. I don't believe any one of them is here by accident. I believe it's a divine call, Father, because you tell us that in your word. So, Father, 
Use them in the life of this church. Father, help us to love them well, to support them, to encourage them in their ministry, even when they're not perfect. But Father, help us to be people of firm lips and firm love toward them and each other. And God, we pray that as we continue to move forward, as we look to you for your help and guidance and wisdom, as we look for the next pastor, as we look for new ministry opportunities and new eras of ministry, God, may we continue to keep our eyes focused in the direction of what you've given us to do and what you yourself are doing among us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to keep standing. You guys can return to your seats. We're going to take the last two minutes and just ask you to pray silently as a congregation as we think about how we should pray for our leaders. So would you bow your heads for a moment? This is just for yourself and the Lord, but I want to give you some thoughts to consider for your prayer time. Would you first of all thank God for the fact he gives us leaders? You may have some specific leaders come to mind. Pray for them. Ask God to strengthen them. This is a difficult time to be in spiritual leadership. Ask God to bless them. Ask God to keep them humble as they serve. Would you ask God to help them to not compare themselves to others? And would you ask God to help you to not compare them to others? Would you ask God to help them know when they are doing right and when they need to take a break and ask for help or forgiveness? Would you ask God to forgive you if you have in some way stood against God's spiritual leaders? Would you ask God to forgive you if you have gossiped or slandered anyone, but especially those who are in spiritual leadership? Would you ask God to build Trinity Church? And we remind ourselves that sometimes that's commendation, sometimes that's correction. Would you thank God for the difficulties He's given us as a church? These are His tests. Will we live by the flesh or will we live by the Spirit? Would you thank God for the person next to you? Whether you know them or not, they're here to worship God with you, to serve God with you.
Would you ask God to guide you to a place, a sphere of influence if you do not currently have one? Folks, that can be as simple as being a prayer warrior for the body of Christ. What a powerful ministry. It can be as simple as being involved in the helps ministry and taking a meal to someone who just had a new child. It can be in being involved in middle school ministry, high school ministry, just as someone who listens to the young people who oftentimes don't have a dad or mom. Many of them don't even have grandparents. And would you lastly thank God for his love for you, his inexpressible gift of his grace to you and to me and to Trinity Church. God, we bow our heads before you as obedient sons and daughters of Christ. We recognize that we are not called to solve all the problems of the world or even all the problems of our church. We are called upon to follow you, those you give us in leadership, and to love each other in ways that reflect your great love for us. So, Lord, this morning, as we've heard your word, may we do it. As we pray for each other, may we live out our prayers, Father, and strengthen us. Build us up, we pray, for the purpose of reaching the lost in our world. We pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like prayer this morning, if there's something in your life you want to celebrate with someone or even ask God's help with, please come on up front. We'll have people here, and they would be delighted to pray with you. God bless you, and you have a great week.